Father, we ask that you would forgive us as a nation uh, for the things that we are doing. We are guilty, we are wrong, we are sinful, but yet you are righteous and you are just. And you have told us that you will judge these things in the future, but you are patient with us, wanting as many as possible to come to salvation. We ask that you would help us to be deliverers of this good news, even in the times of trouble. And even though we don't recognize these things and we're not told these things, we know that the wickedness is rising to a high degree. And we ask for wisdom for the days in which we live and ask that you would provide it this morning through Second Timothy. In Jesus' name. <clears throat> so we have been instructed that the last days will be bad as we're going through the series and they will be onerous, oppressive, and burdensome. Freedoms will disappear and many behaviors will be forced and enforced upon the citizens here in this country and worldwide. There will be men and women inside the church who will rise up according to verse 5 of Second Timothy chapter 3 and they will believe and they will teach things that are contrary to sound biblical teaching. We are also instructed in verse 5 to avoid such people that would do this. These people would be inside the church. Now these individuals will go so far as to claim that they have the correct version of the truth. They will begin to criticize pastors and elders and churches in general. An example of these kind of people are given to us in two characters who oppose Moses. Their names are listed for us in verse 8. They're Janus and Jambres. We'll get to them. And we are told that these two oppose Moses, though they are not listed in the Old Testament. It is thought by Jewish tradition that they were two of the magicians that appeared when Moses went before Pharaoh and opposed him. And it is recorded in Exodus chapter 7, and that is by Jewish tradition. It is believed that they joined the company of the Jews and converted to Judaism. And after that, they lured the people into sin by worshiping the golden calf when Moses was up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments. And they ended up being killed with the rest who engaged in idol worship in Exodus 32. Again, that is by tradition. It is not listed in Scripture. Now, this type of teacher or even leader inside the church will have a particular knack for deceiving certain women in the fellowship. In verse 6 of Second Timothy chapter 3, <clears throat> it reads, They are a kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. And I believe God created women with natural desires, <clears throat> excuse me, and emotions that if not kept in check can lead them into being deceived. And I base this on 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. It says, but I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And remember, Eve was perfect in every way, but because of how God created her, she was open to deception. And those were all good things that God put in her. Now, the same is true with men, especially young men, but in a different way. In general, the way that I speak here, if men are not taught at an early age to remain humble and self-control, they will have a tendency to become prideful, arrogant, and even violent. You can summarize those three things in one word, 
And that word would be stupid. They become stupid. Because women are compassionate, nurturing, desirous of affection and close relationships, and again, I'm speaking in general terms, they can be easily manipulated. If a woman wants relationships, she might change her beliefs and behaviors just to obtain those relationships. And what starts out as a natural desire in good and wholesome can be easily turned into an evil desire, which will lead women astray from the faith. But both men and women are culpable in verses 6 and 7. I want to read it again. <clears throat> they are the kind, speaking of men, who worm their ways into homes and gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. So the men worm their way into homes. Now these are the self-aggrandizing men who are prideful and arrogant and seek after nothing but them, their own benefits. And they get inside the church and they seek out <clears throat> positions of authority and leadership. Now it compares them to a worm. Now, you guys know what a centipede is. <clears throat> a centipede is long and it has legs and it moves just like a stick, just evenly along the ground, back and forth. A millipede does the same thing if you've ever watched them, those hundreds of legs just moving in unison to get them where they want to go. That's not how they get into a house. These men will come in like a worm. If you've ever watched an earthworm, it's almost like they're segmented or like a snake. What they do is like the head moves forward and then it stops and the rest of the body comes in after that and it moves forward a little bit and it stops and the rest of the body comes after that and that's how a worm moves and that's the word that is used here to give us a description in the new international version but it's it's almost like a snake as well and it describes how an individual, one of these men, will get into a home, doesn't say if it's a single home or a married home, just in a home where women who are weak-willed can be deceived. And they start by just going through a few steps. They use speech and they use deeds. At some point in time, all men have worked at spending time thinking about what they might say to a woman in order to gain their attention or affection. Now I'm going to say that again. At some point in time, all men have worked at spending time thinking about what to say to women in order to win their affection or attention. All you have to do is go to a middle school or a high school and watch the boys and how they interact with women or the, the girls who are there on campus and how they try to be tough and say the right things and they do silly and stupid stuff because they really, they're prone to ignorance and, and it has to be, uh, or it is necessary that they get instruction in how to avoid that foolishness which is out there. Now, there are men who have perfected this, that they can say just the right thing at just the right time to gain either the affection or the attention of a woman. Now, what might they say? Well, to a woman, a man might say something pleasant about her appearance. If a man does that, and by the way, compliments are okay, and both wicked men and good men do this. They will say something nice about the appearance of a woman, and the woman is ingratiated and says, well, thank you very much. You know, that was a very nice compliment for you to say. Or something about how helpful or mindful she is that 
she is really an asset, you know, and you start doing things like that and, and it feels good and it's nice to deliver compliments. But the, the thing that is different about these men who worm their way into houses, they have an evil intent as opposed to the men who just want to deliver a compliment to make life kind of pleasant. You know, if you deliver compliments all the time, it's nice not to get anything, but just to deliver a compliment. And by the way, I did this yesterday. I had read something about kissing. And it's useless statistic, but I walked up to Patty. I got really close to her, and she'll testify to this. And I said, did you know the average person kisses someone every 34 minutes I was really close to her then I walked away and I just I didn't (laughs) I didn't I gave her a kiss and she was you know you know she was just all sweet and mushy and it was you know it was kind of fun and I did it on purpose I I planned that I had read it and I go I'm gonna do this and so I walked up to Patty and I I did that now, then I, I, well, let me go on. Now, ladies, I want you to think that men who talk to you and they're trying to get your attention or affection, if they say something like that, that they have ulterior motives, but uh, they're not trying to deceive you. And by the way, this usually only happens with men in their early teens and it lasts until they're about 90. So I don't want you to... <laughs> I don't want you to have to worry about men trying to deceive you, but that's what men do. Men try to talk to the women to get their attention, and, and they're just crazy. Then one of the uh, scriptures in the book of Proverbs, it says that's one of the things that can't not be understood, is a way of a young man with a maiden, because they're just brain damaged. They're kind of crazy at that stage, and it's not until they become older that they actually kind of change. So anyway, some individuals become really skilled in this type of deceit. Men become really skilled in this type of deceit. And I've known people like this, and I could name names. As I was growing up, I knew guys that they had one thing in mind, and they used the power of speech and deeds to get what they want or what they wanted. And I really felt sorry uh, looking back on it. I, I never looked at that even before as a believer and, and said, oh, that's just great. And I, I never saw it that way. I saw these young women uh, being taken advantage of, and I, I felt sorry for them uh, to see that take place. But these individuals, you know, they get preyed on, uh, these weak-willed women, and it's not P-R-A-Y-E-D, it's P-R-E-Y. ED. They get preyed upon by these types of men. And in context, once men like this become an influence over these women, remember that these women have been deceived and these men draw them into beliefs and practices inside the church that are false. And I've seen this happen before, even in this church, where men have come in and they start making the rounds through the women. We actually asked a guy years back uh, to leave the church. Because all he would do is talk to all the women. He wouldn't talk to any of the men. And we just think something was up. Or we thought at the time something was up. So we we asked him to leave. Maybe go fellowship somewhere. And change his attitude about talking to the women instead of the men. And so uh, the women who 
fall in this way. They start out simply, they want to become acquainted with a man who is smart and wise and careful with his speech and has some determination and is perceived to be strong in character. Just how Patty was drawn to me. You know, you want to make sure that uh, the women, I'm just kidding, by the way. Uh, we want to make sure that the women are protected from that just because that's how God created them. They're, they can be, not always, but they can be deceived. And the men are the ones who deceive them. So deceitful men will entice the weak-willed women and then the women fall into this trap and may never be able to come to the saving grace of Jesus Christ. That's what happens. They get led astray by these false doctrines or these new doctrines that come in or these people who want to control the power structure inside the church. They, they worm their way into that as well, usually using the women to do it. And verse 7 again says, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. So the women get deceived and get taken away by these by these men now for a moment i'm appealing to equity which is the buzzword of this generation deceitful women work in this way as well it's not just the men but the women do it the adulterous woman captures a man by what she says in proverbs chapter 7 verse 21 it says with pervasive or excuse me persuasive words she led him astray and seduced him with her smooth talk so both men and women are given to deceiving others if they're of the right mindset. And of course, we have a new mind, we have a new heart, and that's because we pay attention to what the Word says and we avoid those things which are wicked and evil. And though this is true, that both men and women can be deceitful, keep in mind in the context Paul is letting us know that in the last days deceitful men will be in the church deceiving weak-willed women. It is one thing to have a man like this in the world. It's another to have a man like this inside the church. So in the world, even right now in our culture, we see people that are coming forth that are just lying. They are cheats, you know, whether a painting is being sold for $75,000 and you look at the artist and you go, I don't know about this artist. And they have underhand dealings with people in high positions of power or we're being told by the CDC or the NIH that things are this way and then they move the goalposts and they're that way and just all kinds of problems out there be, being told one thing and something else is actually being done but these types of people will come into the church they will tell us one thing but something else is actually being done so I want to read in context again verses 1 through 9 but in another version, the New Living Translation, sometimes it's good to read a particular text in another translation because it gives a little more insight. But I'll read it here for you. You don't have this in front of you, but just go ahead and listen. It says, You should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times, for people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander one or they will slander others. Have you ever been on Twitter? Have you seen what Twitter does or Facebook? Uh, it is there, scoffing at God, disobedient to the, excuse me, they will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. So he lists here 20 or 21 things, depending on how you read it, 
for you to look for for in people that will let you know that these are the last days. These are the things to look for. All of these are existing today. There's no question. You don't have to look very far. Now, people with no restraint and who are concerned only about themselves, they say that I am deserving. I deserve this. And people stand up. Have you ever heard it in the media where they say, you know, we have rights. Well, nobody wants to talk about responsibilities. What are your responsibilities? That's really what we should be talking about. But people want to claim they have rights and they have things that are owed to them. They are deserving. And verse 6, in the same section here in the New Living Translation, they are the kind who work their way into people's homes and win the confidence of vulnerable women who are burdened with the guilt of sin and controlled by various desires. Such women are forever following new teachings, but they are never able to understand the truth. So just by what we see here, we're to beware of anything that is a new teaching. Beware of someone who says, well, the Spirit has shown us something new or the Spirit is acting in a new way. Scripture says there's nothing new under the sun. Back in the book of Amos, it reads here, Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plans to his servants, the prophets. God does nothing new, so to speak. He has told us exactly what he's going to do. He has told us what is in the future. He has told us how it's going to unfold. And there's not something new that is not going to be listed in Scripture already. If somebody comes in and says the spirit is moving, I would say, well, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Use all the Christian jargon. That's great to see that. But is it scriptural? If it's scriptural, we say amen and amen. If it's not, we say, well, where is that in scripture? When did God tell us that this would take place? And we've gone through several bouts over the centuries of false doctrines and false movements which are out there. And we know that in Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, it says, In the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets and at many times and in various ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. Now, for instance, in the Old Testament, the church was never talked about. It was a mystery. It was something new. And God said he will pour out a spirit on the people in the Old Testament. He prophesied that that would happen. Now, Jesus is the word of God, but we have the written word of God in front of us. It has 66 books in it, and we can check that now to see if there is anything that God told us would happen. We don't have to be taken off guard by a new doctrine or something that the spirit is doing that is new, that we were unaware of before, that this is a new mystery that has been revealed. No, God laid it all down. He said it is finished four times in scripture. It says, do not add to his words. And so we want to be careful of that. And the book of Revelation says, if you add to his words, he will add the plagues that are listed in the book. So it's a very stern warning. There is nothing new under the sun as far as doctrine or practice in the church is concerned. We have it all here. And so we don't have to be easily deceived by somebody who comes in and says, there's something new. This is a new way of thinking, kind of like a Gnostic heresy in the first century. Now, going on in verse 8, it says, these teachers oppose the truth. Uh, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. They have depraved minds and a counterfeit faith, but they won't get away with this for long. Someone or someday everyone will recognize what fools they are, just as with Janus and Jambres. So there is a coming time when judgment will come. And I've told you this before, but just to remind you, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, every one of us. 
whether a believer or an unbeliever, everyone who has ever existed throughout all time, we stand before the Bema Seat where we get our rewards because we have trusted in Christ. He has forgiven us of our sins. We may suffer, suffer loss because of something we do out of the flesh that we think we're going to get a reward from. But God says, you're going to get your reward at the Bema Seat. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. But then if you go to the end of the book of Revelation, there is the great white throne judgment. And that's where the dead, those who have not accepted Christ, will be raised. And those who accepted Christ during the tribulation period, or excuse me, during the millennial reign of Christ, those individuals will be raised too, and they will be judged. And if their name is found written in the book of life, they will enter into heaven, get new transformed bodies, and those who have their names not written in the book of life, they will be thrown into the lake of fire. There is no other place. There is no other design. We know what's coming. We know we will stand before God. I don't know exactly how that's going to take place, but each one of us somehow will stand before Jesus who is on his throne. Now, I don't know if he's going to say, give an account of yourself so that everybody else could know because he already knows, or if he's just going to reveal it to everyone, or if he's going to say, I know your deeds. And I know your failings, and this is your reward. And hopefully he says, and I think he will to all of us, well done, good job. Even though maybe you didn't do a lot of works, you're still here because you believed. And you're going to be rewarded for that, simply for your faith. And those who have done a lot of works, well, they will be rewarded as well. And I think it's probably with honor. It's not going to be silver and gold and things like that. I think it's just a a position of authority that you will be honored with if you've done a lot of works. And so this is what is to come. Now, persecution or hardship comes to those who serve the Lord. And back, I'm back to the NIV here. It says in verse 10, you, however, know all about my teachings, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. So what he's doing here is he is contrasting his ministry, Barnabas, with that of these teachers who have come in and will come in in the last days. And he lists nine things. I'll, I'll read them for you again. He says, teaching, way of life, purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, and sufferings. And, and so if you look at somebody and the way that they live their life, the things that they say, remember out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So whatever is in the heart, if you're with somebody long enough, you're going to hear it come out. It's going to be right there. And I think every one of us at one time, the wickedness that is in our heart, the Bible says our hearts are desperately wicked. Who could know them? I think every once in a while, that wickedness pops out. And we say things we ought not to say. And and we lead people down a path like, really, that came out of you? That seems so odd. Yeah, well, you know, my heart's wicked. Please forgive me for what I have said. And, you know, when I, uh, as I opened here uh, with the things that disturbed me, <clears throat> my initial reaction in the heart is I want to do something. I, I want to stop this and how do i stop this you know do i become a vigilante Uh, do i join a militia group just as a side note parenthetical thought i think as it gets worse and worse in this country you're going to see militias arise 
And when those militias arise, I think some are going to get out of hand. And when they get out of hand, I believe there's going to be violence. And that's one of the characteristics of the last days. There's going to be violence. And how are you going to be able to control that? I don't think we are. I think we have gone too far down the path where there may be some attempt to do that. And by the way, in some sectors of our society, violence is encouraged. And in other sectors, it is condemned if it doesn't fit the narrative. And so there, people are going to get frustrated. They're going to get angry. And they're going to act out on that, especially people who don't have Christ. And even some that do, they will say, well, this is the righteous standard of God and we need to uphold it and God provides for uh, the welfare of the people and he's going to use us to do it. And, you know, okay, well, I can't stop that. Just remember, keep in mind, they are people that need salvation and they need to hear the way clearly. I could easily see somebody coming in, not just to this church, but any church, and promoting <clears throat> this idea of Christians carrying out righteous acts of violence. I could see that as being a teaching coming in. And we're not supposed to do so. We're not supposed to engage in violence. What? We're going to save your soul but kill you? Is that what we're going to do? I, I believe that's the direction we are probably heading. I'm not prescient. I'm not a apostle. I'm not a prophet. But you can just read what is out there and what is happening and people are so easily influenced into that type of behavior and so paul says look this is what i have done have you ever seen paul take up a sword in any of the scriptures that you have you don't have you seen him getting stoned and i'm not talking about with the herb that's out there have you seen him a place where he actually got rocks thrown at him and I believe he was killed. Well, it does talk about this. In, first, in Antioch, uh, it, the three places that are listed there in the scripture, Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, it does as well to go and see what happened in those places. And scripture happens to tell us. Now, what if you came on the scene, you were a Johnny-come-lately apostle, and you stood up to one of the main apostles and said, what you are doing is wrong. How would that go for you, do you think? Do you think people would start to take sides? I guarantee they would take sides on that. And this happened with Paul and with Peter. In Galatians chapter 2, it reads there in verse 11, When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. This is Paul talking. Because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived... He began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. And so Paul stood up to this big apostle who is Peter and he said, you are wrong. You ought to stop this. And it's because people came from James, the Lord's brother. And they started to influence Peter in such a way to keep the Old Testament dietary laws and do not eat with Gentiles. And Now, I'm sure James would not have approved of this, but it was the Judaizers who did this. 
people who claimed to have faith in Christ but said you must also keep the Old Testament law. And so they came, like I said, I don't think James approved. They came and they influenced Peter and Peter said, okay, and the way that it's written here in the text in the original language, it's like he crept into it a little bit. Or maybe he ate three meals with them in one day and then it went down to two meals and then one meal and then he'd show up for the meal but he'd go eat with the Jews and he just separated himself completely. And the other Jews followed Peter because Peter was, quote, the apostle the one that the Lord restored three times. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. And so they said, wow, well, obviously we got to follow Peter and we don't have to listen to Paul. And so Paul, I'm sure, received from grief or some grief from that, uh, taking that position. And then there's Iconium. This is where the people's minds were poisoned against Paul and Barnabas and they escaped being stoned. They didn't actually get stoned here. In Acts chapter 14, verse 1 through 7, It says that at Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord. Now, if if you have a group, say you're in a church, now in a synagogue... It's going to be a little different. You know, if somebody's teaching something and then somebody stands up in the back and says, well, I don't agree with that. What about the prophet Amos? Or what about the prophet Isaiah? And he said this. And then the speaker, who would be Paul, would go back and forth with them. And other people would gather around them and say, yeah, what about that? And other people would say, no, Paul is right. And that's what would happen in the synagogue. This arguing going back and forth. And Paul spoke boldly. And Paul would come up probably with verses. And I'm going over this in my own mind. He'd probably come up with verses. And he'd point at the individual and say, You are wrong. This is what the Lord said. And he'd quote some verse. And he would say, You are in error because you know not the scriptures nor the power of God. By the way, Jesus said that when it came to marriage in heaven. So he probably said something like that to them. And they'd go, Oh, Peshaw, and you are wrong and you are conceived in sin you know that type of thing that's probably the argument they would go back and forth on so you could see this happening inside the synagogues and then the people of the city were divided some sided with the jews others with the apostles and there was a plot afoot among the gentiles and jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them but they found out about it and they fled to the Lycaonium, cities of Lystra and Derby, and to the surrounding county, or excuse me, country, where they continued to preach the good news. And so there was a plot to stone them. Now, I, I've told you about these books before in the past, several years ago. Gene Edwards, uh, How to Prevent a Church Split is one of them. And the other one is A Tale of Three Kings. Uh, good books. Uh, to read if you're ever in a position of ministry inside of a church. But in the church, how to prevent a church split. I think if you remember, I told you about there was a plot inside the church where some deacons got together to perform a hit on the pastor. And he came across this in his investigation. He goes, really? This was actually taking place? Yeah. Remember, the people who are in church, they're wicked. So is the pastor, but we're all wicked on the inside. And given the right circumstances, we would do incredibly bad things. And so Lystra is the next place, not just Iconium, not just Antioch, but in Lystra, Paul healed a man who was born lame. 
From birth, he was lame. The people saw what happened, and they tried to sacrifice to Paul, and they tried to sacrifice to Barnabas. And they called Barnabas Zeus, and they called Paul Hermes. Now, they chose those particular gods, I'm sure, because of the characteristics of these two apostles. Barnabas was also called an apostle. Now, Zeus, one of the things about Zeus that was so big, if if you guys have ever been to Washington, D.C., and you see the Lincoln Memorial, and you walk up the steps to the Lincoln Memorial, and by the way, Scripture is on the side, talks about God. If you look at that when you first come in there, I'm sure they want to take that off of there. But it really refers to God and how he blessed this country. But if you go forward and you see this giant statue of Abraham Lincoln sitting in a chair like that. Well, there used to be one like that for Zeus. And Zeus was 40 feet tall. He was big. He was the god of sky and the god of thunder. He was huge. And so if they called Barnabas Zeus, Barnabas was probably a big guy. Now, Paul, I don't think so, so much. You guys know the old FTD florists that provide flowers? And all you had to do was... Back when they had telephones that hung on the wall, you'd call up the FTD florist and you'd say, I'd like to have some flowers delivered. And they would charge your credit card and you could have them delivered anywhere in the world. Do you know who the icon is for the FTD florist? You see this guy with a helmet. He has wings on his helmet and he has wings on his heels. And in Rome, he was called the god Mercury. For the Greeks... He was called the god Hermes. He was the translator and messenger for gods, is who he was in Greek and Roman mythology. Well, what was Paul? He was the messenger and the translator. And so that's why they called him Hermes, and that's why they called Barnabas Zeus. And you can see these guys. Now, Paul, by all accounts, everything that I've read on him, he was a short guy. He was probably bow-legged. He was balding on his head, probably had an eye disease of some kind. I don't know if he had hair, a a band of hair going around, or if he is completely bald. I don't know. But he was the messenger. That's who he looked like. And, of course, Barnabas, you already know what I think about that. And so that's, that's who they looked at. Because this man was healed who was lame from birth. They said, this is it. The gods have come to us. Now, that is not what Paul and Barnabas were interested in and they tore their clothes and they said, men, you need to stop this. They, they opposed that lifting up, that glorification of themselves. They said, no, we're not supposed to have that. And so Paul, he stood for the will of God. He fled certain death and he rejected those who would seek his deification. We also know that Paul was stoned and he was left for dead in one of these cities here. And what happened after that? I think he actually died. And that God said, you're not done yet. And so after the pile of rocks, he, he pushed his way out of the pile of rocks. And do I think that all the injuries were healed? No, I don't. I think that he got out of there. His nose is probably broken. Uh, maybe the skull, maybe the Lord fixed the skull. I don't know. Uh, how exactly he would have done that. But I think the marks were on the outside still. He was all beaten up. He got out of the rocks. And then he goes back into the city and starts preaching again. What a tenacious man. I wish that I had some of the tenacity that he would have. Just get up, 
you can't do that to me. The Lord will keep me alive until you listen. You know, that type of thing. And he gets in there and he talks to them. What a, what a great guy. What a great saint and apostle he was. If we could just be like him. So if he were a deceitful worker, he would have gone with the flow and accepted the majority practices up in Antioch. He would have said, hey, you know what? Go ahead. If you want to keep the feast, if you want to get circumcised, you think that's the way to salvation, go ahead. He would have just said, well, let's not rock the boat. Let's not create waves. Let's be a peacemaker. And Paul was not that type of individual, and he's not like those who had come in deceitfully in the church. Secondly, he would have accepted the elevation of his own importance in Lystra, that you're a god. And Well, I may not be a god, but I know that I'm doing good works, and, and you can count it. The god is working through me, and people in Christendom even today do that. They will talk about how God has blessed their ministry and given them money and resources and funds. How do you know that Satan hasn't done that? You know, we, we have huge complexes built up around the world that um, some claim the Lord has done, and the Lord may have done it. He may have just built up huge communities of Christian faith uh, believers and, and ministries. Great, wonderful, but we don't always know that the Lord has done it. It will be revealed to us at the end. You know, sometimes these guys who are big, they fall. They fall in a tremendous way. Uh, Kenneth Copeland, over $400 million in worth. I think he's a false prophet. I think he's a false teacher, which is out there. And I don't mind saying that because what he teaches actually leads people away from the true doctrines of the Christian faith. And then thirdly, he would not have caused there to be a plot formed against him because of his teaching. You know, this... This idea that when you teach something and people get upset and they argue, they don't try to make peace with the individuals who disagree with them. He met them head on and said, no, this is the proper doctrine. This is what we're supposed to believe. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, he goes on to talk about this a little bit. He says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So he's comparing and contrasting here. He's saying the individual, and he previously states, he predicates it on what he has done and how he has suffered. He goes, the individual who wants to live for Christ will suffer all the things that I have suffered, even worse. That's what he's saying. He says, but evil men, the wicked, will go from bad to worse. And so you choose, which one do you want? Do you want to be a stark witness for Christ or do you want to hang with the wicked and evil and deceiving people that worm their way into weak-willed women's houses? Which one do you want to be associated with? If you're associated with Paul, who stands up and says, I'm going to fight the good fight of faith, you will be persecuted. People will turn to you and say, who do you think you are? You think you're holier now? You think there's a God? I don't think so. Look at the violence around the world. If God is all-powerful, he could stop this. Why doesn't he stop this? And there's evil, and he created everything, so he created evil, right? I'm not going to believe in your God. And so you're going to be persecuted for what you believe. By the way, all of those things that I just said, they're completely false. But you will be persecuted. Do you want to choose that? Well, do you want to sign up? Yeah, I'm a... No, that's not how we are on the inside. We're... We're kind of fearful, like, I could lose my life. Yeah, but you will gain Christ if you follow him. The other ones are condemned. There will be a judgment for them which is to come. So if you live a life for Jesus, you will be hated. If you are, uh, as Jesus says, you will be blessed. 
It says that in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I believe it's coming. I believe that Second Timothy here it is so relevant for us today. There are, as you see things getting worse in the world, everything that is in the world eventually infiltrates inside the church. It comes here. Can you remember when there was a time, at least you've read about them, and maybe you attended a church where they sang hymns. Pull out the hymn book. Now, this is my fourth church that I've been to. And if the Lord wants me here till I die, great. If he calls me on somewhere else, well, great. And I have witnessed... Over the time, and I've been in churches that, you know, they sang hymns. You had the hymn book. You opened it up, and hymn 123 or 225, and you go through that, you read it. Almighty fortress is our God. And, and you read that, and oh, it's just wonderful. It's full, of the, uh, it's full of theology. It's great. And then I remember when the first punk band came into Calvary Chapel, San Diego. The sheep's ears, oh, they just... What? What is it? And the way the guy was dressed. He, he had a vest. It was a, a Levi's vest. And the arms were cut off. And they were ragged. And he had black boots on. And his pants were tucked inside of his boots. And everybody was able to see his tattoos everywhere. And you're going, what? Who is this guy? Because we were used to the choruses, you know. I looked to the mountains where my help comes from and we would sing in rounds uh, where the women and the men would alternate and all of a sudden here comes this guy and he's playing the piano and you're going, what happened to Terry Clark and Dennis Akajanian? You know, now we're going to this and then they would have concerts every Wednesday and I I watched this take place and then it, it got into full Christian punk we actually had a concert over at the other building and a mosh pit. We had a mosh pit where the kids came over from the schools and all around San Diego. We packed out that room and we had one guy who was in the church. And what he would do is he kept the kids in the mosh pit. And he was tall. He was like six foot four. As these kids are going around, and uh, we knew the son of an elder at Calvary Chapel of Mesa. He was into this kind of music, and we brought him out to sing. And he did, and you could hardly understand what he was saying. But this guy would stand on the inside, and he'd push these kids back in the middle of the mosh pit. And it was going around like this. And you're, we're going, what did we do? You know, and we had this going on, and it was just incredible. And then they all sat down, and they got the gospel. There were hundreds of kids there. They, they all got the gospel, the high school kids. I've seen that transition as well. And now you have uh, Michael W. Smith and uh, all the uh, people who are out there singing the tunes they have today. And, and some of it's coming out of Bethel music. And I think Bethel church is wrong. But the music, I, sometimes I don't have a problem with the music that comes out of that. Well, where are we going to go? And by the way, all those music genres have followed the world and they have come into the church. Well, same thing is going to be with the teaching. And this has historically been the case where the false teaching, it comes into the church. Because of what they're saying on the outside, it seems good, it seems okay. Like uh, the self-esteem movement. 
that was back in the 80s that you can't love anyone else before you love yourself so you have to love yourself first I think that was a, a doctrine from uh, the demons themselves and that's what scripture talks about is doctrines of demons no we are worthless we are uh, harmful to ourselves and everybody else that are, is around us and we're never going to change that it is only by the grace of God that he comes in and gives us a new heart and he's the one that does it we cannot work and transform ourselves it has to be God and so those doctrines are coming and this is what is coming to the church and there's going to come a time where the doctrines that you hold to of the historic Christian faith are not going to be accepted, just like they are today. They're not accepted in the world, but there are going to be people coming to the church that say we need to water that stuff down, and you're going to be persecuted for it. And when that happens, consider yourself blessed, just like I read in Matthew chapter 5. And so there are two types of men that are listed back in Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. There are those who are just plain evil, and they will be known you'll know that they're evil inside the church and the destruction they do then there are going to be those who are seducers like those who cast spells like those who are wizards they put on a different front but they actually mean harm they mean to elevate themselves they mean to put down everyone else and so these evil men will seek power wealth and influence in the church you will be able to see what they do and know that they are evil. The seducers will impose desires, their desires, on the same things. They, they want the power, wealth, and influence. But they will try to gain it by maintaining the appearance of righteousness and holiness. They will be wolves in sheep's clothing. So let's apply this. <clears throat> Say the Lord gives us another 10 or 20 years. Will we see the rise of individuals that are evil like those that are the imposter? Yeah, we will. They'll be coming into the church no matter where we end up. Like I said, this is my fourth church and if the Lord calls me somewhere else, I'll, I'll be able to recognize it somewhere else. Or just like you, if the Lord calls you on somewhere else, you'll be able to recognize it somewhere else because Second Timothy chapter 3 listed it. And we will be able to discern those who are wicked by the scriptures we have been given. It will be our task to point out people like this to those who who are younger in the faith and to those who are more easily influenced to error. That's our job. As we become more mature, if you've been a Christian more than 10 years, you should know what the uh, solid doctrines of the Christian faith are. You should be able to point to what the error is. You can say, no, this is wrong. Like the Toronto blessing that I've spoken about before, the roaring in the spirit, the, the people uh, who think that, uh, what is it, um, being slain in the spirit is something that is doctrinal. It is not doctrinal. Scripture says the spirit of the prophets is subject to the control of the prophets. So the slain in the spirit is not a biblical doctrine. I think it is still another doctrine of demons. So in the church, I'm going to give you a few things about a true leader. A true leader doesn't seek after a position of prominence. In Mark chapter 9, verse 35, Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last. He must be the servant of all. And so the person who is a true leader in the church will just seek to serve the Lord in whatever capacity. Won't stand up and say, I want to be a leader. A true leader is not self-appointed. He is called, just like Jesus was. Somebody who's a leader in the church is called. When it comes to leaders inside the church... We have never, well, in the beginning I did. I said, you're going to be a leader and you're going to be a leader. And it was a disaster. It, it was a disaster. I said, okay, Lord, 
You choose them and I'll acknowledge. And that's what we did from then on. And from then on, it was great. We just simply stand back and go, Lord, who is it that you want to appoint? Hebrews chapter 5 verse 4 says, No one takes this honor upon himself, referring to being a priest. He must be called by God just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. So anybody in a position of leadership, they have to be called by God. And it will be affirmed by the body. Thirdly, a true leader is not influenced by gaining of wealth and power. He seeks only the kingdom of God, not what he can gain from ministry. You don't go into ministry to make a living out of it. You go into ministry because God calls you. If you make a living out of it, great. If you don't, well, okay. doesn't matter. God called. Matthew 6, 28 says, Why do you worry about clothes and how the lilies of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, and yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and gone and thrown into the fire tomorrow, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith, so do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagan runs after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And so that's what the individual who has been called to ministry will do. He will trust in the Lord, not worry about those things. And if for one night you go hungry, okay, praise the Lord. Time to fast. That's what you're supposed to do. And if you don't have a place to stay for one night, well, praise the Lord. Maybe he wants you to stay up all night and pray. You know, that's what the leader gets called to, something like that. And I'm referring especially back in that day and age when this was given, that could be a real possibility. A true leader, also number four, would be just as content being an usher or a greeter than a leader. Psalm 84, verse 10. It says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. So, hey, whatever you want me to do, Lord, I'm willing to do it. And then if the Lord calls, great. And a true leader willingly accepts the role he is called to. Now, there might be some reservations and some doubts, but he willingly accepts it. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. Now, someone might object and say something like, Well, Moses was reluctant, right? And he was. Yeah, and God would have killed him too had it not been for his wife because he was so reluctant. Remember the story? is in Exodus chapter 4, verse 24. He would have killed him. So the one who is called by God, I think that you should just answer the call. Finishing up here, verse 14, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know that those are, you know those from whom you learned it, which was his mother and his grandmother, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So, Our encouragement, you know, when I started out, like, what would the Lord have us do? Stay the course. That's what he'd have us do. Just have us persevere. That's the dominant theme for Timothy in the writings of Paul. Also, stay calm. Move forward. You have been told what's ahead, and don't worry. So let's pray. Father, we we thank you for your word, how it has enlightened us to what is to come, how there are going to be false teachers, those who will not endure sound doctrine those who will attempt to turn others from the true faith. 
We ask that you would provide for us so much wisdom, wisdom that is overflowing, that when we see error, we are able to discern that it is and that we're able to inform others. We thank you, Lord, for this time that you have called us to dwell in, that you have called us to be witnesses in. May we not fear for ourselves, but for those who are lost. In Jesus' name, in the church said, please stand.